Welcome to the Vitamin SC3 podcast. You're listening to the Essential RX segment hosted by Dr. Lemetra Scott. The Sickle Cell Community Consortium powers the Vitamin SC3 podcast. Please remember that the information you hear on the Vitamin SC3 podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. The information shared is not to be used as medical advice or consultations with healthcare professionals. Stay tuned to hear the full episode. The Sickle Cell Consortium is a collaborative designed a little bit like the United Nations in theory so that we can bring together many organizations for sickle cell throughout the country and now throughout the world, as well as um, independent patient caregiver leaders, opinion leaders, advocates, those that are active in this space. And our goal is, what we've always done, is bring our community together so that we can create projects, priorities, initiatives. We can figure out what are the problems, needs, and gaps in the sickle cell community, and then figure out how we're going to collectively address this. To become a member of the Sickle Cell Community Consortium, visit sicklecellconsortium.org. Hi, everybody. Thank you for tuning in today to the Vitamin SC3 podcast. Today, we have a very special conversation that we're going to take part in today from uh, someone who's near and dear to my heart, near and dear to Breaking the Sickle Cell Cycle Foundation, and also that has a personal experience with sickle cell disease and also a part of the curative process. Today, we will be speaking with none other than Miss Lacan Cooper. Hello. Lacan, thank you so much for joining us today and for just sharing your story. I know this is kind of evasive and getting into your your personal life, but sometimes we need that personal touch and that personal experience to help us understand what it means to explore a cure with sickle cell disease. Because oftentimes we hear what pharma has to say, we hear what scientists have to say, we hear what doctors and nurses have to say, but what about the patient themselves? So, and you know, it's always the, the how the saying goes, forest bias. While this is not FUBU by any means, we do need to understand how something that is intended for the sickle cell community, how will it actually help the sickle cell community from a personal perspective? Mm -hmm. So I will let you and just take it away with, you know, just giving us a little bit of a background of who you are and why you're here with us today. Well, my name is Lacan. I was diagnosed with sickle cell at the age of 16 months. And it's just been a journey. And as a child, my mom was always there. She did everything. So it really wasn't much I had to do. But then once I became adult, it was like, I'm grown. I don't have my mom down my back so I could do what I want to do. Mm-mm, it don't work that way. Constantly sick. And I want to say I got sick more as an adult than I did as a child. Because I thought I had this. I'm like, I got this. I know what to do. No, I didn't. So it was just an ongoing battle. And me being me, I was like, well, I tend to get sick more in the wintertime. And being in Chicago, it's extremely cold. So I moved to the south. Then I noticed a pattern of me getting sick continuously because the weather out here constantly changes. 
So I was finding myself getting sick more. And the hematologist that I was seeing at the time was only seeing me twice a year. And mm-hmm. me being from Chicago, I was like, that's not right, especially being on the medication I'm on, the hydroxyurea. I need to get labs once a month. So I just constantly was in sick, sick, sick. And my sister just happened to go to a doctor. And her doctor wasn't there that day. She had an emergency, so she had the, another doctor filled in for her. And my sister noticed he had the sickle cell on his lab coat, whatever they call it, the white jacket. And she just started talking to him about me. Now, she's there because she's sick, but the whole conversation was on me the entire time. And she called me. She was like, I think I found you a doctor that's going to help you, that really can help you. Because I was getting admitted 24 times a year. Wow. 24 times and being in the hospital a whole week each time. And it was just always blood transfusion, blood transfusions, and all these pain meds, which I was like, I can't keep doing this. And I was telling my sister, I don't want to see no more doctors. I just want to stay in my little bubble. I'm tired. I'm done with doctors. And she was like, just see this doctor. He's, I really think he can help you. He seems to know what he was talking about. It took me three months. I made the appointment. I went to see him. And the first thing he noticed was the jaundice in my eyes was more severe than most sickle cell patients. Before we go a little bit further, for those people that may be listening to the podcast and not familiar with sickle cell disease, or you're just in, get, entering into this space and you're getting patient perspectives, when Lacan is talking about that the, this particular doctor noticed jaundice in her eyes, she's referring to the yellow coloring. So the whites of the eyes, instead of looking white, they begin to look yellow. And they look yellow because of the increase in bilirubin. So when sickle cells break apart very easily, on the inside, they have various contents. And one of the contents that's on the inside of red blood cells is bilirubin. Normally, your body can get rid of bilirubin relatively quickly through the regular um, excretion of urine or waste. But in sickle cell disease, because these sickle cells break apart so quickly and repeatedly over, this is continually happening, which creates anemia, but it also causes a buildup of bilirubin. And when that bilirubin builds up, the body is not readily able to get rid of it as quickly as it needs to. And this causes the whites of the eyes to start to yellow because of that increase. So that's what she's referring to when she says that the doctor noticed this jaundice in her eyes. I just wanted to make sure that everybody was on the same page and they actually understood what that meant. Yeah, and so me being me, I'm like, my eyes are always yellow. They've been yellow all my life. And he was like, no, they're severely yellow than what normal most sickle cell patients are. So I'm like, okay, whatever. And in my head, I'm saying this doctor don't know what he's talking about either. I'm ready to leave. But he was like, let me do some blood work. And me, I'm like, I'm so tired of blood work. But I let him do it. And when my results came back, they came back like within a week. And his nurse was calling me saying, the doctor needs you to come in the office now. And I'm like, oh, more blood work. In my mind, I'm like, more blood. I'm like, okay, well, when do he want me to come back? She was like, can you come today? He needs to see you. And so now I'm freaking out. And when I get there, he was like, your blood works came back, this, 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 that, and the other. I'm going to refer you to a special, another doctor who can help you. 
already sent them your lab results. So I'm like, see, I knew he couldn't help me. So here we go again. Now I got to go to another hematologist and explain my situation all over again. So at that point, I was frustrated. So they made the appointment. I didn't go. They made another appointment. I didn't go. Took me a whole year. So then when I did go to this appointment, I'm like, this clinic looks so familiar. So back when I first moved here, I remember going to that clinic, seeing this doctor, because, but I couldn't understand him because his accent, so I never went back. I could see the plan God had for me. It was like a connection, but I just didn't get it then because when I first met Dr. Kasim, it was at Meharry. Before he went to Vanderbilt, he was at Meharry. And I had got admitted, and I was on all these fluids. And the way they had it going, I had two IV poles, medicine on both. And I um, couldn't even get to the bathroom in time because I'm, both poles and the wheels was bad on them. Those people who've been in the hospital had bad poles that don't push right. So when you're trying to get to the hospital, it was frustrating. So the nurse put everything on one pole just so I could go to the bathroom. But needless to say, before she could come back in and hook everything up, doctor comes in, what is going on? This one is not going, this one is not going. I said, you know what? Since I'm wasting y'all time, I'm just going to go home. I'll go home, sit in pain. I'm used to this because in Chicago, they send you home. You have to be on your pain meds at home for so many hours for you to come to the ER. So I'm used to it. So I was like, I checked myself out and went home. So when I saw him again after he they referred me back to him, I was like, this is not fin this appointment is not finna go well at all. But needless to say, that is the best doctor ever. Now he's my best doctor ever. And um and I kept noticing that why is this say stem cells? So he deal with cancer patients. What does that have to do with sickle cells? So why do he work in this clinic? Yeah, it was a journey, but he, um, when I went to him after the, uh, the doctor in Meharry referred me over there, Matthew Walker, not Meharry, but Matthew Walker, and um, he looked at my lab results. He was like, these results are from a year ago. Let us test and see how you are now. And when they came back, he was like, your liver is really failing. Your liver is failing. You're in iron overload. And it's a wonder if you're not dead yet because it was high numbers. And with me, I'm like, he don't know what he's talking about either. But he actually did know. You talked about earlier on throughout your entire life almost, getting blood transfusions is almost, you know, that was a way of life for you. Going to the hospital numerous amounts of times and each time you went to try to manage your sickle cell pain episode at that particular time, blood transfusions were involved. Anytime you get a blood transfusion, you're not only getting blood cells, you also are getting other things such as iron because your red blood cells, they also contain iron. Well, iron is something that builds up in the body as well. And it's not something that readily goes away. Every time you get a blood transfusion, iron begins to deposit into your organs. So when, and those organs are typically in the heart and into the liver. Those are two main organs where iron accumulates. So in the case of having iron overload for Lacan, that's why her 
lab results as far as what they were looking at on the blood panel and looking at her liver enzymes, they could tell that there were some issues going on with her liver, which in turn gave rise to the yellowing that you saw in her eyes as well. I told you that bilirubin was something that spilled out into the blood from the red blood cells. And it's also indicative of something is happening in the liver. The liver is not able to break down, move, process things as it should. So therefore that buildup is showing in her eyes. And now based on her lab results, her liver enzymes are showing that the liver is failing as well. And all of this is compounded by the number of blood transfusions that she's received over a lifetime. This is why I'm putting all of this into context to help you all understand what's happening, what's leading Lacan to the pathway of needing to pursue a curative therapy for sickle cell disease, because not only is she having pain episodes and pain crisis, now her organs are beginning to fail. So I'll let you pick up there and and tell the rest of your story in terms of what led you to further consider having a bone marrow transplant. To me, I was feeling fine because this is my way of life. So this was normal for me. But in reality, it wasn't normal. I just had got comfortable with being where I was at, being sick all the time. I'm like, this is just going to be my way of life. What was normal to you as far as fatigue, as far as tiredness? The pain, it just became a norm for me as an adult. And I was like, well, maybe this is just how it is when you become adult. This is just part of what you have to go through. So it was a norm to me to feel the way I was feeling. Couldn't keep a job because I'm in at the hospital a lot. So it's like I never really knew that there was a better way of life having sickle cell if you have the right person to manage it. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I'm going to give him a chance. Let's see what he can do. So the first thing they did, they was like, we got to get these numbers down, your iron down, because normal is like in the five. 15,000 mm-hmm. range and I was in the 850,000 range which was way 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 high so they started me on a chelation where I had to do 12 hours it was a 12 hour infusion so I had to walk around with a fanny pack now you know that's cramping my style now I'm in the fanny pack <laughs> fanny packs you know, when I was a little girl so I would try to hide it you know trying to hide and I was like I'll just do these at night so won't nobody know and then I started noticing a difference once my counts start coming down. And then they also had me on, it's a weird name, um, mm-hmm. Jay New, which is a pill I had to take in addition because they was like, we got to get it down fast. So it was like, do y'all want me to take the pill or do y'all want me to do the 12-hour infusion? I'm not doing both. I don't like taking pills. I've been taking them all my life. So that was a battle with them. Because I refused to do both. I was like, I'm either doing one or the other. So I went with the 12-hour chelation. I do. I say, I do it five times a week. I do it every day if y'all need me to. I don't want the pills. Why didn't you want the pills? Was it? They were too big. And I, I have the hardest time swallowing the Tylenol. And everybody knows the Tylenol capsules are small. I have a hard time swallowing because it's something with my, with my throat that certain stuff just mm-hmm. get caught in my esophagus. So I was like, I do the chelation, but they kept crushing the issue. You need to be on both. We need to get your numbers down fast. And would you study getting sick, study going in the hospital, you're going to need the blood transfusion because your hemoglobin is dropping. So mm-hmm. it was like, okay, I'll give it a try. 
So were you getting these numbers down so that you could start your bone marrow transplant? I hadn't even considered it yet. Okay. Three years of being on that chelation, my numbers started going down. I started feeling better. I was more energized and stuff. So then I just asked, I was like, so what is stem cell? Because I keep seeing, because I noticed this is the stem cell clinic. I see a lot of cancer patients. Is this something you all do with um, sickle cell patients? And then I was like, wait a minute. My friend got that done in Chicago. She got the uh, stem cell transplant. And, um, but she was saying she didn't do chemo or none of that. So when they were talking, I said, well, maybe she did something different. So I was like, they started talking to me about it. So I was iffy because, you know, it's a win-win situation. Like every, every medical treatment, it could work for some people and not work for others. So it was a 50-50 chance. And the big thing with them was you have to take your medicine. He was like, I already done 13 of these and mm-hmm. I've only lost one patient. So I'm thinking I'm going to be the next patient he's going to lose. So we're not going to talk about that anymore. But then I kept having crises. I was like, enough is enough. So then I went, after my stroke, I was like, okay, I'm going to try this stem cell thing. So let me just talk to him about it some more, get to know a little bit more about it. And we talked about it again. And he was like, you are a perfect candidate for it. It's just about finding the right match. And I'm like, oh, we ain't going to find a match. But not only did I find a match, I had three matches in my family. Three matches right in my family. Wow. The least that could happen is it don't work. And, I'm, you know, so I took a risk. I am a risk taker. I got to say, I take a risk with everything, even with the transplant. The do's and the don'ts. And, of course, me, I did the don'ts mm-hmm. and not all the do's. So that that was just me. I was like, let me see if I can do this. I'm going to push it. Maybe they don't know this and that. You know, I just started experimenting on myself in addition to them doing mm-hmm. the transplant. So, <laughs> Well, it's always good to follow. Yes. It's best to follow the doctor's orders. Mm-hmm. especially when you're dealing with uh, a bone marrow transplant or gene therapy. And it, because it is not something that you want to take lightly and going through the process, it does require your immune system to be completely obliterated with chemotherapy is involved. When you do a bone marrow transplant, in essence, they're taking out mm-hmm. the single cells or they're going to the marrow, removing all signs of, personal sickle cells and all of your personal cell line and replacing it with that from your donor. So when you said that there was a donor that you have, that was a match for you. So in going through that chemotherapy process, not actually um, the transplant day, but what did you have to do leading up to getting ready for the transplant? What was required during that phase? Oh, so much happened in that short period of time because I just started, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm getting ready to get admitted to the hospital. So it was more so before they could even admit me, I had to submit my caregivers, who's going to be taking care of me, who's going to be taking me to the doctor, who's going to be coming to the hospital to sit with me. They needed account for everything, and they had to verify. They have a lady, that's all she do. And so I sent her a calendar, 
three months of calendars with everybody's names, what time they come in, and who was so they'll know who was what. Because they will not do the transplant if you do not have that support team. And that support team is very, very, very important. So that's the first thing. They're not going to do it if you don't have that support system. Because it's not going to work. Because you trying to do it yourself is impossible. Because the way you feel, uh, uh, is it, it just won't work. So they have to make sure, because I'm like, I got this. I ain't worried about this support system. I could do this. No, I couldn't do it. I could not. No. And I thank God for the people who did step in. Okay, so you got your caregiver and your support plan that you turned into them. Uh-huh. Were there any uh, medications or treatments that you had to take before the transplant actually took place? Yes. So before transplant, I did eight, was it eight or nine? Eight or nine days of chemo and then a day of radiation. Okay, And I say, chemo wears you out, girl. I didn't know that it make the body feel, you know, because I see people, they be throwing up and all that. And I'm like, hmm. And the thing that I didn't understand, which I had the hardest time understanding, is why I had to be admitted for chemo. I'm like, I see people get chemo every day. They leave and go. But the type of chemo I had to get was more intense. And mm-hmm. I had to shower. I had to get up and take a shower every freaking three hours. If not, it can burn my skin and things mm-hmm. like that. So, and they wanted to make sure that I was getting up, getting them showers. Because at home, I ain't going to even lie. I want to get up every three hours, take showers. If I'm asleep, let me stay asleep. But that was the hardest part for me because you're tired, you're weak. You don't want to move, but it's like I got to get in this shower. Why can't they just have a tub and I just go to sleep in a tub type of thing? So that was the hardest part. But the main thing, you had, I had to get my support team in place before they would even admit me for the procedure. The money was there, the funding was there. But if you ain't got this support team, we're not doing it. We, we're not going to do it. I'm like, oh, my gosh. So then it's taking the time to see everybody's work schedule and who would be able to do this, who would be able to do that. And they're like, well, when is the transplant? I said, I can't get the transplant till y'all say y'all can do this and y'all can do that. So they was like, my kids and my sister was like, yeah, we got it. We're going to do it. And my sister was like, well, I'll be out of school until August because she's a teacher. So she was the main point person for everything. And I think she talked to my doctors more than I did. And I'm like, I'm the patient. Let me talk to them. She she was on top of her game with everything. So kudos to her and my kids. Well, that's good that you had a good, um, good advocate, like a good patient advocate beyond yeah. yourself and your sister and, and your children. So now take us to the day of transplant. So you've got your support system in place. You've gone through the pre, uh, pre-transplant mm-hmm. phase where you've gotten your medication and your chemo, and your day of radiation. So now you are at the day of transplant. Tell us about what happened on that day. It was real emotional for me. It was, it was very emotional. I mean, I cried. And, I, of course, I was documenting the process as I was going along. But on that day, when they was getting ready to give me the set, because they came upstairs, they was like, your daughter did awesome. Look at all this bone marrow. It was three big, I was like, big bags and I'm like oh my gosh is my daughter okay is she gonna live is she gonna make it because it was big I mean they were big bags they were bigger than the IV bags I was like oh my gosh 
And um, so, cause they harvest, they have to harvest. So they got it from her and it had to be harvested and they bought it to me. So I was cool and fine all the way up till they connected and I saw it running down. Because at that moment mm. it was like, mm. you're not going to be in pain anymore. And I'm yeah. sorry, but that was just really emotional for me because I'm 45. So 44 years I had to live with this, not knowing that there was any hope for me. You know, I just thought I'd be dead before I'm 50. Mm -hmm. I won't get to see my grandchildren, you know, go to high school, go to college. So it, it was like very, a very emotional for me because it was like, now I have a promising life, you know, and it was just really emotional. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine. It was, it's almost like a rebirth. Yeah. You know how when people, when when people, women have a baby, it's it's very 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 emotional because yes, you're going through an extreme amount of pain in the process, but at the same time, you're bringing forth life. My tears were tears of happiness. I was just happy, you know, that my daughter because it was like three times I had a scheduled date for this transplant because at first mm -hmm. my oldest daughter was going to be the donor she ended up pregnant so that pushed it off my baby girl was already pregnant so it was like I couldn't use her we was going to use my sister but because she had some heart issues we couldn't use her so I was like that's it I'm just giving up I'm not, I ain't going to never get the transplant and I was telling my kids y'all knew because my daughter got pregnant six weeks before my transplant day. I was like, you couldn't have waited six weeks? You know, I was really, really frustrated. I'm like, I didn't went through all this to get to this point and now you can't do it. She's mom, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I was like, it's okay. It's fine. Maybe it's not meant for me to get this transplant. So when it actually happened, that's why I was so emotional because I had three different dates and then some happened each time. And then, to be honest, when I look back at it, I just thank God that I didn't get it those times in those years because it was still some kinks need to be worked out. So it was like, got the transplant done. There was a medication protocol for everything. So every symptom I started having after that, they already had a plan for it. They had, what is it called? When they pre-planned, they pre-planned for anything that could happen because of side effects that other patients had had. So they already knew how to treat it. So that was the plus size of it. I was like, okay, it was worth the wait. Because they was like, graft versus host disease is when your body starts rejecting the donor's marrow. You could get real, real sick and transplant could fail. So they had medications for that. They had medications for seizure. It was just, I was on so many pills. And of course, in the hospital, it's like, I felt like I was on like 100 pills, but it was only 70, 70-something. 70 but by the time I left, it was down to 32. Well, I think when you said that that was hard, it also sounds like people need to be prepared mentally. So you can have all the support network, you can have all the medicines and doctors, but it sounds like before any of this starts, you really need to be prepared mentally to go through this process and to know that whatever is required of you, it's required for that time being. It's not forever. So I think that's something that people need to understand 
Take away the time that is required to, to, to take care of yourself. Follow the doctor's orders. And this is not forever. Just think about it. When you're on the other side of this procedure, you will have a brand new life, a brand new meaning of what life is to you and the things that you'll be able to do now that you've never been able to do for as long as you've been alive. Yep. So I think that people need to put that into perspective when you start thinking about going through the bone marrow transplant process. There is a mental preparation that is required and not to take lightly. That is so true. So now that you've gone through the process, you're on the other side now. You had your your transplant, you in your cells engrafted like they were supposed to, and you're able to go home. What happened after that discharge? The recovery process. So they was like, well, you're going to have to come to the clinic every day for the first 100 days. So the first 100 days is crucial because your platelet level is low. And they always have to check your platelets levels because if you need more platelets, they have to be able to give you more platelets. Because any little fall or bump, they take them real seriously because with your platelets being low, you can bleed out. Bleed on the inside, not the outside, but you can bleed on the inside. Because I think I fell and hit my head or something. They're like, we need a CT scan. We need this, we need that. I'm like, I'm fine. All I did was, you know how if you picking some up, and you lift up and you bump the, your head on something, like the corner or something, something. They took that real, real seriously. And I'm like, but I, I'm fine. There's no knots. I feel good. But they precaution-wise because of platelet levels. So the first 100 days, then after the first 100 days, then you go three times a week. After that, they go on for about a month. Then it's two times a week, all the way till you get down to once a week. Now I'm on once a month. Well, good. That is very, very good. And thankful that you've made it. You know, you've made it this far. And I know that during the process, it wasn't an easy task um, by far, because there are a number of things that can happen even after the transplant that can land you back in in the hospital. Yes, because I caught adenoid virus. I caught a ship cruise virus. Never heard of a ship crew virus until that till I had it and they was like did you go anywhere were you around anybody I had went to Walmart because I couldn't wait on my sister to come take me to Walmart to go to Walmart for me so I went to Walmart to grab a few items I had my mask on cool and I got back home later that night I started running a fever oh that's another thing if your fever goes above 100.4 you get admitted to the hospital. So I had a couple of them where I had to go back to the hospital because I got this low-grade fever that they're taking seriously because it could be a sign of an infection coming on and they want to catch it before it spreads. They said I either walked past a person who had it or I touched some that the infected person touched. And um, it started breaking down stuff on the inside of me. I had to go all the way to Cincinnati to get a five-minute treatment that they just pushed through my pick line. It was some T-cells because I didn't have a match here in Tennessee. So I had to go all the way to Cincinnati because they had a match there. Mm -hmm. Because they was like, or we could send you to Paris. I said, are y'all going to pay to send me to Paris? I'd rather go to Paris than Cincinnati. And they was like, no, we don't have the funding, but we will get you guys to go to Cincinnati. So I was like, okay. 
Okay, cool. This just highlights why it's so important for people to understand there is no immune system. When you go through this process, your immune system is completely removed because you want to give those transplanted stem cells the best chance of surviving that they can have. So you have to remove the, the mm-hmm. person's immune system. What that means is that any any yeah. little thing you could be susceptible to can cause infection. So that's why it's almost like you need to live in yeah. a bubble for a, a period of time. You really do need to live in a bubble. You really are living in a bubble. And I think like what you said in Basically. terms of how COVID prepared you, I think what we did for COVID in isolating ourselves, that is a, a standard of practice, I think, for any patient undergoing the bone marrow transplant process. So now you say you're to the point where you can go to the doctors now. It's just once a month. Do you feel any differently body-wise? Because I know before you said you were tired, you were fatigued. I have so much energy now. And it's like, I be trying to find stuff to do just to do. And everybody's like, you just need to sit down. You need to rest. You're still recovering. I'm like, I'm fine though. Even though I'm still, because um, recovery could take a year to two years. They give you two years. So, because right now I'm in long-term clinic to the end of next year. And you have to get all your vaccines again. So all them shots you got as a child, newborn, you have to get all them all over again because the chemo then wiped all that defense away, though. That was another thing I, I'm still going through. I didn't get my third round of shots now, so I begin. I'm done for this year, but next year I got to get more shots. I can't be around mm-hmm. people. I just gotta face reality. You can't be around people. Stay in the house. Sit down. I don't wake up every day wondering whether or not I'm gonna be outside and get sick. You know, when the weather change, am I gonna have a crisis today? Do I need to keep a sweater on while I'm outside in the heat because I'm cold? I, I feel none of that. Mm-hmm. It's like now I just, I'm have, I have more hot flashes now than anything. I'm always hot now. And I used to be cold, major. now it's hot. And I say, now I see what normal folks go through. When they say they hot and I'm sitting over there like, please don't cut that out, you know. <laughs> Oh, that is funny. So what about your sickle cell? Do you experience pain now? And if you do, is it the same type of pain that you had when you were experiencing your sickle cell pain? That was one of the first questions I asked with the um, transplant. I said, am I going to experience a sickle cell crisis after I get this? They say some people do. So that time I was anticipating that as well. So when I did feel a sickle cell crisis came on, mm-hmm. it was in my legs, but the pain stayed at a two. It never went past a two, and it was like that for about two or three days, and I haven't had pain since then. And then I still be like, maybe I need to be retested for sickle cell. Maybe, you know, it was just I kept okay. having well, doubt cool. after I went through that because I just knew I was finna have a real bad crisis because I was like, I ain't had a crisis in a year, and now I'm having this pain. But then it's also a matter of fact of being able to distinguish if it's sickle cell pain versus regular pain. But me never just having regular Mm -hmm. pain, I was always sickle pain. So it was like, this pain is not Mm -hmm. a sickle pain. And I was like, oh, now I know the difference. It's a totally different pain. So that was good. It's good to not have to worry Mm -hmm. about being in that much pain. So Mm -hmm. that was the 
fun part. So it's like I'm more at ease now, but it's just having a lot of energy. And I, my eyes have never been white. They're not white, white, but they're not yellow. Well, that is good. It sounds like everything went well, although it took a while for you to get to the actual transplant itself. It seems like it was necessary for you to go through the things that you went through in order to justify why the bone marrow transplant was necessary at the time in which you did decide to do it. So in, in all times, things that we experience in life they all have their own timing in which they are to take place yes now that you're on the other side of it it sounds like things are going well um and there are it sounds like there are no regrets am i correct in saying that none none whatsoever I just had to look at it this way. There's always going to be a risk with anything. Just like when you go in to have a surgery, there's a risk you could get an infection. You know, mm-hmm. even with the flu vaccine, some people get the flu, some people don't. It's a 50-50 chance with everything. And it's to me, it was basically how you look at it, how you accept it. And me being a child mm-hmm. of God is like, well, I already know God told me I'm going to be healed, that he was going to heal me. So I was expecting the outcome of I'm not going to have sickle cell anymore. This transplant is going to work for me. It is for me. So it's sometimes people, mm-hmm. it's how, like, how would I put it? Like when you speak life of yourself, it's like a power lies in, you know, in our tongue. So it's like life and death lies in power of our tongue. So when you speak life on something and you start believing it and you start confessing it, yes, it's going to mm-hmm. come to life. But if you like, it ain't going to work. I'm not going to do this. The scientists always this and that because that's how my mom was. She was like, scientists, they they just experiment. We all guinea pigs. She's still on the Tuskegee thing. That's how she was. So even as a child, it was like, no, I'm not going to let them try this. They can't try that. But when I became an adult, I was like, whatever y'all got, if y'all want to use my extra blood for to experiment with, I'm fine. Anything that'll help cure, find a cure for sickle cell, I'm for it. So when that opportunity came up, it was mm-hmm. like, yeah, let's do this. Let me see. You know, I don't think it happened is it don't work, you know. But I went in with a positive mindset, like, it's going to work for me. You know, 44 years, it's a long time to be in pain like that. And to be pain-free is just, it's amazing. It's real amazing. Wow. Now it's like I want to advocate, you know, for on the peds, like, hey, You know, you have to listen to your mom, you know, because when you become an adult, there's things your mom didn't tell you that she had to do when you was a child to get you the proper care that you got. Now I just want to be a big advocate for the emergency room care on the adult side is my main focus now. You've paid it forward in so many ways for those that are coming after you in this sickle cell journey. You've paved the way in, you know, contributing to research, being a part of the research by going through the bone marrow transplant process, because everything that you've experienced has definitely been a a cornerstone and teaching moment for all the scientists and doctors that are involved. You've paved the way, you know, for other patients coming along this journey and telling your story to help them in preparing themselves for this process well and for continuing to advocate for the community after the fact. So for that, I just want to say thank you. I want to thank you for spending your time with me today, for sharing your story, 
Um, and if there's anything that you want to share with the community in terms of how they may be able to contact you if they wanted to reach out to you to talk to you, if they are considering this journey and they just want to have a one-on-one talk with you, how would people get in contact with you? They can reach me by email at lacan, L-U-K-H-A-N, at btsscycle.org or this is my first name at breakingthesicklecellcycle.org. And once again, I just want to say thank you, Lacan, for sharing your story with us and your trailblazer. So I guess we have to put that in your name as well. It's Lacan the Trailblazer uh, for the sickle cell community and what it looks like it means to go through the bone marrow transplant process. So with that, we will wrap up our conversation for today and we'll catch you all next time on the next episode of Vitamin SC3 Podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Vitamin SC3 podcast. We hope that you will leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Remember, a new episode is coming out next Monday. So please tune in and enjoy.